0: This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio.
1: Good morning everybody and welcome to this beautiful Sunday we have. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined in the studio by Dr. Lauren. Good morning.
2: Good morning. It's been a huge weekend. Daylight Savings, Grand Final and Dr. Shane's birthday today. The most important out of all three.
1: Well, you know, (laughs) I feel ripped though. Daylight Savings, I lost a whole hour off my birthday.
2: I know. Well, it's amazing how much it actually throws you out though, Daylight (laughs) Savings. Like I didn't sleep last night because I was so paranoid I was going (laughs) to sleep through and miss the whole show and... I've, See, I get didn't, anxiety.
1: You don't have kids. The, cha- <laughs> the chance of me sleeping through till about 10 o'clock and missing the show not going to happen. Yeah,
2: okay.
1: <laughs> Although they did sleep in a bit this morning. there you go. Good yeah, they kids. Know.
3: Dr. Ray, good morning. Morning, uh, Dr. Shane. I have to echo Dr. Lauren's uh, concerns about daylight savings time. And I have a child and I was still running late. And I, and I, I just <laughs> remember driving up going, wow, well, this is the day you wish Triple R had a chopper. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> We, we don't. No,
1: oh, I don't it's
2: disappointing. It's the only reason I'm on the show. <laughs> one day get a chopper I'm ride.
1: sure we can get some. Yeah, there's a lot of really great subscribers who have helped us out this year. That's true.
2: Radio Farm was huge. Yeah, so. I'm, not,
1: I'm not sure if it's enough for a chopper or just enough to keep the uh, place. Maybe one of those little
3: remote control ones. Well, yeah. as, as we learned from Melbourne to Geelong, it's only about $5,000 for yeah. a chopper, right? Do that. Uh, well, I only live out
1: in uh, Sydney, so, I mean, that's, that's you'll that's be able fine. to get that for two grand. <laughs> it's not far, from, not far from the airport. It's all convenient. It's great. So... Mm. <laughs> Interesting. Mm. I I'm, I'm look, I'm just happy because I put my tomatoes in uh mm. in last week, so I need the extra sun that comes with daylight Savings. It's very important.
2: Isn't it extra sun? <laughs> well, I, well they yeah. won't grow. <laughs> I do remember hearing, I can't remember which state it was, but they didn't want to introduce daylight savings because they were worried about the cows not sleeping properly. Yeah, it'd be Queensland. I don't yeah. love it. I think it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's great.
1: Uh, <laughs> now let's get on to some real science news because we've got three amazing guests uh, waiting in the green room today, folks. We're going to be talking about some really cool stuff, but we'll give you some science news first. Dr. Lauren, what do you got?
2: Uh, so I was reading a really interesting story that was released yesterday, uh, looking at a new use of smart textiles. So we've spoken a few times about these similar sorts of things uh, on the radio so we're looking at using materials that can sense and store energy and process information and this particular uh, textile has been developed by Professor Gordon Wallace from the University of Wollongong and his team and published uh, this week in the Applied materials and interfaces journal and what they've basically done is used a a new process where they can use stretch sensing fibres in like a a knee sleeve for example so if you've got an injury or something you can put on this knee sleeve which basically looks like spandex but the materials that are in there are actually able to measure strain and stretch and they can do this really very cleverly. So it's a, it's a material that's made from organic conducting polymers and polyutherine. And it actually is then woven into an electrically conductive textile with sensors in it. So what it means is when you're moving your knee, for example, the material is actually sensing how much your knee is moving and what the strain is on that mm. material. So they're saying that it's really good obviously for looking at people with injuries and how well they're moving their joints after injuries, but they could use it for training sportsmen so they could actually be wearing these materials and learning how their body moves, which might help. Sports people. Oh, yeah, oh, God, that's a bad slip, wasn't it? But, well, see, sportswomen don't need it because they're really talented and they don't injure themselves as much. See? There's some Ta-ching. holes
3: that you can't <laughs> dig out
0: <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you I'm can't, like you can't well, dig is that
3: like... true or not? And then you go, you know, cheerleading, which isn't classified as a sport, but actually is mm. there's a huge amount of injuries in that yeah. one. Yeah, yeah.
2: So. well, that's because they're crazy. Some of the stuff they yeah, do. Like, there's pyramids, like, the human pyramids. I know, it's fantastic. Um, <laughs> but it is pretty go. cool, this material. <laughs> so they're now looking at using it for seatbelts so that you can actually get oh, yeah. some information from, from seatbelts as well. But the other really cool thing that this lab's working on is actually using can, similar...
1: Can, sorry, can we just stop on the seatbelt thing there? Yeah. Do you know one of the things, Dr. Ray, I appreciate this, yeah. that's always amazed me is how appalling seatbelt designs are. Ah, oh, that's true. So, so you go from no tension at all mm-hmm. to hard stop. Mm-hmm. There's no graded tension increase in yep. the seatbelt, so you, you feel a hard stop. Mm-hmm. Whereas the entire car is designed to extend the time of the impact by crunching up. Yeah, that's true. So your car is designed so that it minimizes, you know, the 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 change in velocity with time um by crunching up slowly. Mm -hmm. But your seatbelt is designed to just go
2: Yeah. And that's and that's what often people in cars often often end up with broken ribs and broken collarbones and things from that. Well well
3: well, hang on. Your car is designed to dissipate energy by sacrificing the car. It's called crumple Mm. zones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. that is, they don't uncrumple, mm. whereas what mm. you're asking a seatbelt to do is lock and crumple. then release want it to because you want, it, <laughs> you want a mechanical switching system that has redundancy in it that's always going to work but then when it comes on it has to come off
1: yeah i suppose what they've done is they've Mm. replaced this capacity in the seatbelt system with the airbag Mm, that's true which is a shame but the seatbelt you know you hit that thing as you say yeah that hurts it does hurt it really does hurt anyway
2: sorry no 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 but they said this like they're doing some amazing stuff so they're also looking at using these new smart fabrics as batteries as well so one of the tricks with these particular things at the moment is that yeah you build these sensors into the material to sense how the body's moving but then you know looking at how you actually. Power those sensors, so they're actually also looking at ways of braiding fiber electrodes through material uh, to then also store energy and, and have a battery sort of f- you know function as well. It's
1: interesting. Some guys. Um Alberto Cimino and Tony Klein mm. made something years ago called the rubbery ruler about almost 30 years ago now that was designed for the I think the Russian cosmonauts used it initially and it was a Sounds like a
2: joke shop gag so like no, a rubbery ruler no, was actually
1: it was a a, a series of um, electrical contacts that were made into a, an induction type ah, loop yeah, and in in essentially wrapped in the rubber band yeah. and as you stretched it or you compressed it the amount of induction changed, and Clever. you could measure the astronaut or cosmonauts' mm. um, position. Mm. As a result, you wrap them around their elbows, things like that. Yep. Same sort of thing. I wonder yeah. if these guys have done done a bit of a literature review and seen that yeah. you know, on a larger scale, mm. this has already been done quite extensively. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it'd be great to see it on on the small scale. Yeah, mm.
2: yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, one of the things that has changed, I guess, recently is the ability to mass manufacture some of these materials. Yeah. So now you can actually, you know, potentially down the track, have whole pieces of clothing made of these particular mm. fibers which is very pretty cool.
3: cool very cool dr ray dr shane um, i have a bee story yeah, cool. Uh, love a, love it, a good bee. It, 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 it's, it, it's not a, oh gosh, they're dying of, because of exposure to neonicotinoids from, from pesticides. It's, it's actually quite fascinating. It's, it's an amazing impact on looking at ecology and the impact of, of climate change in a way nobody, I think, had really considered. Uh, and this is alpine bees. And this was sampled at three different places in the U.S. Rockies, but they're good models for alpine regions. The summers are getting longer and it's getting warmer. Mm. And one of the impacts of that is you end up with different flowers. And so... And when I say different flowers, did you know there's flowers with long tubes and short tubes? Hmm. And that affects how they're pollinated. Mm. Because you, there's these amazing synergies that you get or or mutualisms between bees with long tongues that that pollinate flowers with long tubes and then the generalist, more generalist bee with a shorter tongue that can do a range of flowers, but maybe not the long one. And
2: it's a bizarre thing to think of a bee's tongue. Just just off track completely.
3: Particularly (laughs) since they measured 170 bees. And so I had to go look up the article and like, wait, they said there was a change of in in over 40 years because of the change in flower distribution in these alpine bee species. They haven't, they've actually, because you have less long tube flowers around that they used to be paired to, we're just the long tube bee pollinators. They've actually gotten to more generous pollinating and the average bee tongue length has shrunk by about two millimeters and 40 years. Wow. Now first of all, Two millimeters. How long is a bee's tongue to yeah. begin with? As it turns out, between 8 and 6 millimeters in one species, and even down to 4 in the other. Wow. These that's are pretty long relative the, to the size of the bee. These yeah. are alpine bumblebees. And so I, I went, oh, my gosh, that's really big. And I went, oh, wait, wait, this is a bumblebee. And, yeah, and you right. have to remember, bumblebees are significantly larger than any of the species we see in Australia. Mm. Uh, mm. In, in fact, if you're walking along... And run into a bumblebee, there's a little bit of momentum transfer between you and the bumblebee. They're
2: not,
1: they're
3: not quite as small. (laughs) Slightly
1: smaller Um, than a sparrow.
2: Dr. Ray, I have to ask, how on earth do they, what's the methods of that? How do you measure a bee tongue? Stick your tongue
3: out and
1: measure
2: it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, I, 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 I,
3: I, I don't know the particulars, but I don't believe the bee makes it. Yeah, uh, I, I, I think that's a it's a it's a it's a dissection.
2: Okay, that, and, that makes uh, sense.
3: And, and and you know if it's we're talking about an eight millimeter appendage, I mean they can measure antenna length. They, mm. yeah,
2: I, you know, yeah, uh, it's pretty cool.
3: That is very yeah. cool. And,
2: and, and,
3: and it's just wild. It's really because we're seeing this change in ecology from mm. warmer summers, and that general foragers do better on that. So these bees have actually adapted. And forty years, the original mm. bee measurements were in nineteen sixty six. Um, 40, 50 years, we're talking about
2: and that's a, a, change.
3: Short, mm, it's a short space of time.
2: Yeah, and it's a big difference. I mean, if it's two millimeters difference from something that was four to six to start yeah. with, that's a mm. large difference.
1: It'd be, it'd be very interesting to look at the data and see whether or not there's a nice linear transition mm. here or whether it's trailing off, because, of course, there will be a point where the bee's tongue just can't yeah. change any further. And yeah, yes. And, and then, then
3: that's where we have problems. Yeah. With The, uh, the catches is they, uh, they did it in two blobs of uh, measurements in sixty six mm. to 1980, and then okay. a more recent study from 2008. Oh, 14. The flower data is very historical though. They have a good record of that. Mm. And so they see the change in flowers and the, mm. the change in pollinators. So, mm. you know, we see these symbiotic relationships or mutualism between animals and plants and there's some real advantages to that for both, both species that are involved in that and to see those things change from mm. a warming summer in an alpine region is a bit surprising. Mm. Disturbing. Alright, a uh, couple of things to
1: mention. Uh, one is we should mention the, the water, indications of water mm-hmm. on Mars news during the week.
3: Mm, You (laughs) You know, one one of the lead researchers was actually quoted saying, well, yeah, sure, this is like the thousandth time somebody's found water on Mars. (laughs) But it's important because you can't just have – now I'm paraphrasing. That was the part they had. (laughs) (laughs) You can't just have one discovery. It has to be science works by – Confirming leads by seeing those observations in different ways and then extending and building. And that's, I think, what a lot of this study was.
1: Well, I think this was fabulous. I mean, it uses spectroscopy to look for a particular type of salt, mm. and that salt is only formed in fluid. Mm. So mm. if you see that um, there must be, must have been fluid there recently. Yep. And we're not talking about, you know, a thousand years ago. We're yep. talking about, you know, last year it wasn't there. This year it is. It's sort yeah. of, this is happening now stuff. So that, I think that's, that in itself is an exciting little piece of science. Mm. But I think NASA has to be a little bit careful when they're putting out press releases around the time films like The Martian are <laughs> being released, <laughs> um, that, that kind of get people thinking, hmm. Oh, life on Mars, life mm. on Mars. Um, yeah, because they've done that a few times now. They'll just mm. back the truck up, will be a bit clearer about what um, what, what the expectations are. But look, it's all great science and it's amazing stuff. And it was funny, I posted, um, for those of us who uh, are on Facebook and for those of you listening who follow our Facebook site, I try and put some interesting stuff up there. I put up uh, some pictures, um, the most recent Martian um, landscape pictures, and I mm. indicated stuff. that having seen the film The Martian, where they do some great special effects but the actual pictures of the martian surface are better than mm. the ones in the movie yeah like yeah. they are yeah. that amazing <laughs> and that detailed yeah. um you're actually better to see the real ones which is rare that you can ever say that mm. actually so
2: I, I have been caught out i must admit with some of this for the footage and the, the images that are coming back now i keep thinking it's fake like you know that, that it must mm. be some sort of you incredible. know incredible and yeah. they're stunning absolutely stunning yeah, absolutely images stunning.
1: now speaking of stunning images um over the last week something phenomenal has happened i'm not sure dr ray if you're aware of this, but uh, Dr. Lauren and I were talking about it before the sh- show started. Um, NASA have put into an archive the entire set of Apollo mission photographs that you can look at. That's very So, cool. folks, if you want to have a look at them um, to see whether or not it really happened, <laughs> for those of you in that camp, piss off, don't bother. Um, but for everyone else who believes in science, who has an iPhone, who actually uses antibiotics and understands that science <laughs> is real... For those people, um, they have put all these absolutely magnificent photos of which, you know, as general population members, we have seen, you know, less than a percent Mm. of those photos in our lifetime. I mean, you only ever see the a few glory shots. Yeah. Um, Some of them are just absolutely magnificent and they're really worth having a look at. Mm. So they're all available. Uh, via one of those um, Flickr accounts, but um, if you just do a search by the NASA website, you'll be able to find them.
3: They're, they're stunning, mm. Dr. Shane. I'm excited and kind of wish you hadn't told me that because now I just completely. Messed up my plans for this <laughs>
2: yeah. uh. Uh, sorry dr Rays family
1: <laughs> you 're actually one of quite a number of people I know, and maybe it 's the uh, the geeky friends I keep um, <laughs> who have made a very similar comment about it wiping out weekends mm-hmm. but, but there are literally thousands of these images and if you if you want to have a look folks they 're really worth having a look um, because they show a lot of uh, um, angles and shots mm. of the craft, and for me, some of the most amazing ones are just on the launch pad they 're just you know, yes. just stunning stunning. Um, photographs of of something that, you know, today we would struggle to do you know, that people were doing in the sixties. So yeah, get online, have a look at those and and hopefully you will enjoy. You are listening to Three Triple Arts, Einstein and Gago time folks, that's science, if you're wondering. And It is our pleasure to have in the studio Dr. Leslie Cheng, who is an early career postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at La Trobe University here in Melbourne. Welcome to the studio, Leslie.
4: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
1: Now, you're working in a really interesting area of neurodegenerative diseases, and in particular, the use of something called exosomes. You're going to have to tell us what an exosome is, because it sounds like... Uh type of bike.
4: Oh, uh, really? <laughs> I'm not a bike. biker myself. I was uh... gonna go
3: with another name for an exoplanet, but okay. Oh okay. Yeah. yeah. What's an exosome?
4: So exosomes are quite a hot topic at the moment. They're small little membrane vesicles. They're about 100 nanometers in size and mm-hmm. they're secreted by almost all t- cell types as, as well as tissues. And eventually they end up in the bloodstream where we can then isolate them from say if we took a blood sample and then extract its contents. And they contain protein and nucleic acids. So we can do proteomics for example to profile the proteins in them or next generation sequencing to profile all of the nuclear acids the dna the rna in them and they've been shown to actually be secreted from one cell um mm-hmm. and then also be taken up by recipient cells so they're now being harvested as a, a source potential source of biomarkers
1: okay so so when you say they're secreted by all cells yep. in the body, I mean, when you're measuring these, does that, not, are they all the same, regardless of what cell they come from, or do I, does my heart secrete different ones no, to so my brain yeah. and so forth?
4: Yeah, good question. So, uh, on the surface of the exosomes, there's the protein markers, uh, and we, by screening the protein markers on the surface, we can determine where they came from. Uh so at the moment in terms of neurodegenerative diseases mm-hmm. we've found that exosomes do contain neurodegenerative proteins such as alpha-synuclein or uh, amyloid beta which are the proteins involved in Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Yeah. So yeah the They're quite unique.
1: Mm. So Now let's talk a little bit about Parkinson's because that's the area where you're focusing this work. How do we detect Parkinson's disease at the moment, beyond, of course, the symptomatic aspects? I mean, how do you go about determining or
4: confirming that someone has Parkinson's? It's mostly motor function, Mm -hmm. and also we also do neuropsychological testing. Uh, Most of our work is actually based on Alzheimer's disease, and the Parkinson's disease is an extension of our Alzheimer's disease uh, studies, I guess, Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way to validate our ad work we want to also screen parkinson's disease patients as well okay yeah. okay
2: so does that mean that you were saying that the, the proteins temperature... oh
1: your microphone seems to be off i don't know why that is oh, okay. do you want to use raise for a second uh, you're listening to three triple folks it's <laughs> not a rich place here
2: I love it. We only have one microphone. We have to all share it. Um, no, I'm just quite interested with, with um, our saying Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, yes. um, obviously have sort of similar proteins. Yes. How closely do we think the two are related?
4: Uh, so that is quite, that's still under, I guess, research. Mm. Um, we do know particular, they're both misfolding disorders, uh, protein misfolding disorders. PD is characterised by the accumulation of alpha-synuclein within the Lewy body, so these little uh, inclusion bodies in the brain. Mm-hmm. And after a while, uh, they form sort of inclusions, and in particular, they affect a certain area in the brain called uh, the substantia nigra, which controls motor function. Whereas Alzheimer's disease is another misfolding protein that Eventually accumulates, it becomes neurotoxic, toxic. it kills the neurons in the brain uh, and then eventually uh, causes neuronal cell death and the atrophy that you see in the brain.
1: Hmm. When we're talking about um, detection and yes. early detection, which is a key thing, how early are we talking about? You know, I mean, I just turned 44 today.
4: <laughs> <Still laughs> Happy birthday
1: to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I may. End up with this condition when I'm 65. I mean, I mean, is it possible to start detecting that early on or are we talking within the symptomatic period?
4: So at the moment, uh, Showing through PET imaging, we've Mm -hmm. seen that the accumulation of these proteins occur between a 20 year period uh, before the patient starts experiencing cognitive symptoms or decline. So what we want to do is use these PET images. At the moment, we have a a study called ABLE. It's the Australian Imaging Biomarkers and Lifestyle Study of Ageing. And it's a longitudinal study in Australia. It's the biggest of its kind. We have about 1,500 participants and they come uh, and uh, visit us about eight, every 18 months and we track them. We, uh, they go through a whole battery of assessments such as PET imaging, blood collection, neuropsychological testing mm-hmm. and we follow them up every 18 months and we hope to see if... Uh, we can track them. So at the moment we have this test where we can detect the disease and um, predict their risk. And so we want to go back to the tissue banks and the blood banks to see how far we can or how early we can detect right. this change. Yep, yep.
3: sounds good. Uh, just a, a bit more naive question about the exosomes and mm-hmm. detection. Um, so sorry. Uh, your uh, The exosomes are secreted from every cell mm-hmm. and what you're you're effectively trying to do is take things like the PET imaging and make a link to you have this degenerative protein you found in an exosome somewhere in the body. Uh, I'm imagining there's not much of this material in the bloodstream, and I, I imagine separating must be a challenge. Maybe centrifuges and filters, I'm yeah. not sure how. Yeah,
4: uh,
3: how, right. how hard is it to make that link? I know you said you're validating now, but... Uh, that sounds challenging to me as yeah, a naive so, yeah, again, engineer. Yeah, that's
4: a, a really good question. So what we're trying to do now is to capture brain-derived exosomes. So there is quite a lot of exosomes in the blood, and we do use ultracentrifugation to pellet them. Uh, but at the moment, we're finding quicker ways to do this uh, so that a diagnostic lab can carry it out quite efficiently. Uh, but to have a more specific signature towards the brain, we're trying to identify brain biomarkers on the surface and use perhaps, uh, immuno, immunocapture to capture the exosomes, uh, and then only analyse those that are derived from the brain and perhaps we can get a more specific signature to a neurodegenerative disease. But currently we've also profiled Um, different RNA uh, and compared them from exosomes and versus non-exosomal collections. And we find that, in particular, the biomarker that we're looking for, microRNA, are enriched in exosomes. So it's giving us this high signal-to-noise ratio, and we're able to pick up this strong uh, biomarker signature for Mm. Alzheimer's disease.
1: Now, with certain um, blood tests for conditions, especially around prostate cancer, there's been a lot of controversy over recent years as to the efficacy of those, as to whether or not it was worth doing some of those tests and you know i think there's there's very strong arguments in both directions i have to say i haven't read enough about it to work work out myself which way i'd be leaning um what sort of you know accuracy do you think you will get from this sort of test i mean it seems like it's a an extremely precise uh measurement you you have to make to actually get these exosomes from the brain you know at the right time you know and then link it up does that does that lead to an incredible um, level of accuracy of, of these tests or is it the other way around
4: uh, well that's what we're aiming for so using uh, cohorts like the able cohort and ones that are international we have still have to do a lot of validation mm. and we wanted to get it to a point where uh back in the day when we didn't know what cholesterol was for and now it's you know yeah. we can test that and we can determine your risk of developing a heart disease so that's um that's what That's what we aim
1: for our tests to be as well. Mm. Well, Look, it sounds great. Leslie, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us today and uh, good luck with this work. It really is um, interesting and these exosomes are obviously the the, the hottest thing on the uh, little biochemical... You know, daily calendar at the moment and, yep. and I can imagine if they are produced by every cell, uh, surely every different specialty will be looking at these as the they new, are. as the new way to go. Um, so good luck and thanks for chatting to us. Thank you. Dr. Leslie ching is an early career postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at La Trobe University. Three.
3: Three. Uh,
1: you are listening to 3 R. We're back. It's Einstein and Gogo Time Science Hour. Dr. Lauren, let's do a quick scientific test of your head, your uh, microphone.
2: Testing 1, 2, 3. Hey, hey I fixed I'm it. back.
1: See, I turned it off and on again. That's yeah. um, <laughs> how you fix it's everything. Amazing. <laughs> it is actually, <laughs> you know, I've got a black bar on my plasma television. Mm. I'm pulling the back off that sucker.
2: What do you mean a black bar?
1: You, the, each uh, Your placement television yeah. is made up of a number of sort of um, stripes, if you yep. will, and each one's addressed differently by a little circuit port. Ah. And what happens sometimes is those little connectors get loose yep. Yep. and they can vibe, you know, the sound and stuff vibrate out of place. And then ah. you, you end up with like a black solid bar across your television.
4: Okay.
1: And one of my TVs has got that. Yep. Past yep. the warranty, is it? Oh, yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. past the warranty. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh, but, you know, nothing like getting a screwdriver and ripping the back off yourself. I <laughs> you, you know to let the, the capacitors and the power supply discharge first. Yeah, it's yeah. been a good 10 minutes, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Or you can use a child to discharge. Yeah, that, yeah. that works faster. I feel like um, we should have
2: some sort of warning here. You know, do not try this at home.
1: I'll put the pictures up on Facebook. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the last one won't be me in the emergency room. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have a guest in the studio, a real scientist, not <laughs> Dr. Paul Lasky is a postdoctoral fellow in the Monash Center for Astrophysics in the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. Welcome Paul, how
0: are you going? I'm very well thank you, thanks Look, for having me.
1: It's great to have you in here because um, you guys put out this uh, release this week which was really impressive um, about the sort of the end or the, I guess a, a, a key critical point in this 11 year search that's been, that has been going on with CSIRO's Rose Parks Telescope that you guys have been involved with that's been looking for um, essentially gravitational waves Let, let's start there first with the gravitational wave, I mean what why should we Why should we get gravitational waves? Everyone's
0: aware of gravity that they stand yep. on, but what's a gravitational wave and why should we get them? So uh, gravitational waves are, to me, one of the most exciting things in physics at the moment. Um, and, you know, it's a bit sort of nostalgic at the moment. Uh, they were predicted by Einstein um, and his general theory of relativity. They come out as a direct consequence of his general theory of relativity, which hopefully you know is turning 100 in about a month. Mm. Oh. And yeah. that's pretty cool. Uh, Still,
1: still hanging in there too.
0: It's still hanging in there and (laughs) still doing incredibly well. Yeah, suck that (laughs) new (laughs) one. So what gravitational waves are is they're basically little ripples in the fabric of space time. Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is sort of the, you know, the colloquial definition of them, I guess. But what they effectively do is they change the distance between you and I. So as a gravitational wave passes between us, uh, space actually gets stretched and squeezed. And so the distance between you and I actually changes, physically changes. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to detect. Now, if it changed by a large amount, of course, that would be simple, and we'd have detected mm. them by now. Yep. Uh, it doesn't. It changes by an incredibly tiny amount, uh, and that's actually what we're looking for.
1: Okay. So, so what have we been doing specifically with the dish up in um, at uh, Parks? Because this is a, I mean, this is still, you know, so many years later, one of the most
0: extraordinary scientific instruments in the world. It really is. It's a beautiful dish. Um, and so, what we're actually doing is we're we're monitoring a whole set of neutron stars. And so, neutron stars these compact remnants of uh, old stars once they've died out. Incredibly incredibly. incredibly dense they they weigh as much as the sun but they're you know they have a, a radius the size of melbourne so they're incredibly dense objects and they rotate incredibly stably okay and so what we do is we measure the rotation of those and so over 11 years we've been watching about 24 neutron stars and measuring the rotation of them incredibly precisely um and what you're trying to detect is a change in the rotation, or a change in the apparent rotation, which would be induced by the gravitational wave passing between us and that neutron star. Okay, and so you, you count up all of the rotational periods over eleven years, mm-hmm. and it works out to be eleven billion rotational periods, uh, and we know we know that number precisely. Uh, and you count them all up, and you say, right, if if there was a gravitational wave passing through us, it would be eleven billion plus a few. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't seen anything, so right. we, we can account so for every a, single one. So
1: it's a null. So at the moment, it's a null result essentially, that's which right. doesn't mean that it exists. It just means one hasn't passed over a, a specific size, presumably that's above right. a certain size, above a passed certain passed amplitude.
0: That's right. So above a certain size, exactly. Um, so what we're actually sensitive to in these is actually what's called a stochastic background, and so we're actually sensitive. Uh, and what we've published in this paper, what we're looking for is a background of. All the gravitational waves in the universe at this particular wavelength, um, and they sort of sum coherently on top of each other. And so we're looking for that sum of mm-hmm. gravitational waves, and that's okay. what we haven't seen. So, first, wow, because um,
3: <laughs> when you actually talk about what you're actually measuring at the distances you're doing it, that's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And two, at least. As an engineer, my understanding is the universe is complicated. So I have a, a naive question for you to take apart and explain. So if Brian Schmidt got the Nobel Prize for the universe expanding, yes. and you're trying to look at small little wiggles of it going back and forth, do you run into the problem of different effects canceling things out at different frequencies that may
0: make it an even more complicated thing to observe? So you do, uh, and in fact it, it's not so much to do with this um, the acceleration of the expansion of the universe that, that Brian Schmidt found, but there are other very, very subtle effects that um, that we do have to take into account making this an incredibly difficult measurement. So for example, uh, neutron stars, while we they rotate incredibly stably, they do have some intrinsic noise properties that we honestly don't understand, we're trying to learn about, they can teach us a lot about neutron stars and uh, dense matter, uh, but we don't quite understand that, so we have to factor that in. Mm. Now one way to do that is to monitor many, many neutron stars, and the idea then is that a gravitational wave has a specific signal that you're looking for across the sky. So one neutron star in one direction, the signal from a gravitational wave will be correlated with the signal that you get in a neutron star from the other direction. So you can get rid of that noise intrinsic to a neutron star by looking at multiple neutron stars mm. and things like that. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of subtleties. You have to take into account the orbit of the earth around the sun, the, sur- the motion of the sun around the uh, around the galaxy, all of these subtle things uh, that we have to take into account, uh, we mm. do. We try to as best we can. Um,
1: now, w- I mean, cool. we've we talked a lot about detection, but what's the source of the gravitational waves? I mean, they must be coming from somewhere.
0: Absolutely. So they're coming from supermassive binary black holes throughout the universe. Supermassive that's... binary black holes. Ripped out <laughs> <a sentence laughs> passed over. <a> <laughs> today, it turns out if you say <laughs> it often <laughs> enough, in The workplace, so then you the kind of get used to it.
2: <laughs> yeah. You yeah. don't abbreviate it, you don't
0: have like a SPHB, but better. you can't say it out loud. That out loud. No. Yeah. It doesn't, doesn't work. sound quite as
2: cool, like yeah. it, it doesn't.
1: doesn't work in a pub either. What, no. do, you, what do you do? I oh, work on supermassive binary black holes.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: what do you
3: do? <laughs> so,
0: so, where do we find these things? So, so these things are in the cores of um, the most massive galaxies throughout mm-hmm. the universe. So, we know that there's a, a supermassive black hole in this core of our galaxy, it's called Sagittarius A star, and it weighs around about a million times the mass of our sun and we know that that turns out that's actually a lightweight okay Mm, so what we're actually talking for talking about now is supermassive black holes that weigh around about a billion times the mass of our sun maybe even 10 billion and so galaxies throughout the universe they uh, come together and they merge. And as these galaxies merge, the black holes in the centres of their galaxies also come together. They sink to the bottom of the merged object and they spiral around one another. So you've got two black holes that are spiralling around one another uh, and that actually emits a lot of gravitational waves. Okay. So we're searching for these coming from the, the far corners of the universe, the distant reaches, mm. uh, and there's, as I, as I mentioned, there's a superposition of all of them, um, throughout the universe. Mm. Now,
1: there's some other experiments going on, on, on Earth, aren't there, that mm. are looking for the same thing. So these are, these are large sort of arm-length optical, I think, experiments that, that look for the same thing. I mean, what's the difference between the two? Why are we doing both? Is one better than the other?
0: Absolutely. No, so they're just, uh, they're, they're searching for different objects. Uh, so this is the, the LIGO interferometers, they're called, mm. and there's a, a couple of interferometers uh, in the united states and actually it 's a very exciting period for them just uh, two weeks ago, they switched on in what 's called the advanced detector era, so they were collecting data from two thousand and two I think to mm. two thousand and ten weren 't actually expecting to find anything this was sort of a very much an, um, a, a lead up um, they 're increasing in sensitivity they 've now switch them on again in the advanced era, much more sensitive, hopefully going to see something very, very soon, at least in the next few years. Uh, but these are actually sensitive not to supermassive binary black holes, but to stellar-mass binary black holes. So uh, black holes that weigh similar mass to our sun, so they're a little bit closer. They, you know, um, only a few galaxies away, hopefully. <laughs> uh, hopefully not in our galaxy. Uh, but also um, binary neutron star mergers... Um, also supernova explosions in our own galaxy we should be able we can potentially detect something with those, uh, those LIGO instruments. So they're searching for different sources and this is just because they search in a different frequency band.
1: Mm. So we've finished this 11 year search. What's, um, what's next on the agenda for this? Do you guys just keep looking and hoping that, you know, I mean, 11 years on a cosmic scale seems pretty short to me.
0: It's pretty short. <laughs> um, so it's actually the reason that it's, I mean, 11 years is a bit of an arbitrary number. We, mm. you know, decided to publish now because we had a very interesting result. Uh, you keep collecting data. Um, but this result is, has now told us um, that we don 't understand the universe as well as we thought it, we thought we did, so the theorists now will go away and they 'll say right, what have we got wrong about our model of the universe, about the way these black holes form in the centres of galaxies, how many there are, etc, etc, that can be reconciled with this new number uh, The observers. Well, we'll keep looking because as the longer you look, uh, the, the lower that limit comes down, you collect more and more data and that limit keeps going down. Unfortunately, we might have to look for a while. So we're, you know, there's also ways of changing the observing strategy. You can look at different frequencies. You can, uh, look with a different amounts of telescope times. Mm. So at the moment, we search once every two weeks and things right. like that. So searching for different frequency gravitational waves, slightly different sources, things along those lines. Mm there's still other sources as well we could potentially be sensitive to one very close supermassive binary black hole merger um so we just need to keep looking for those mm. you know the, there's still a lot to be done um this yeah. is a null result but it, yeah. it's
1: still i mean it is a hard thing and you know it took a long time to to look at the higgs mm-hmm. and you know these sorts of experiments take a long time and Absolutely. they are they are, i mean if you guys detect these gravitational waves I'm not going to run down Burke Street naked, but I'll be pretty excited. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that'll, that'll be a big thing. Paul, thanks so much for coming in today and chatting to us, and, um, and good luck with the next 10 years of this sort of experiment. I hope you guys um, detect something at some stage. It'll be great.
0: Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Dr.
1: Paul Lasky, a postdoctoral fellow in the Monash Centre for Astrophysics in the School of Physics and Astronomy at Monash University. 102.7. now we have our third and final guest in the studio she's been waiting very patiently in our green room dr robin murphy is associate professor in the department of biochemistry and genetics at latrobe university here in melbourne welcome to the studio robin
5: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Now, it's it's great to be able to talk to you because you work uh, in so much of the sort of areas to do with our bodies and muscle and so forth. And I have to say mine are screaming due to some karate classes I did earlier <laughs> in the week. So I'm going to twitch around a bit. But um, what I want to start with, though, is your work in the area of glycogen. Yep. What is glycogen? Why is it important to our bodies?
5: Well, glycogen is the major um, fuel source that you have in muscle. Mm-hmm. And um, it comes from glucose in the blood. So when you have a meal, you have increased blood glucose, and then your muscle, along with your liver, take that glucose up, and in muscle and liver, store it as glycogen. So now you're ready to do your karate class, or mm-hmm. or do whatever activity you want to do.
1: And how long does it stick around for? I mean, have you have you got it for 24 hours, or or until you use it?
5: Yeah, until you use it. Essentially, okay. you um you you have different people have different capabilities of storing glycogen and that comes down to how well they train so someone who's training for an Ironman, man for instance is likely going to have a, a high capability of storing glycogen and someone who sits on the couch and drinks a lot of soft drink probably won't have a great capability so you can store different amounts um getting ready i always think about it as your muscles getting ready to do the exercise so mm-hmm. if you're using them then it's going to get ready for the next occurrence of which you're going to perform your exercise
1: okay. things like altitude training t- Total BS. Is that, is that, does that work? Yeah. And is, is the glycogen part of that or is it a completely yeah. different mechanism? Well. Can yeah. of worms?
5: You, probably <laughs> a can of worms. I'm, I'm not the person for it. I've got someone who does high altitude, um, research coming out to my lab from Canada, uh, next month. Right. And I could probably quiz him on that. But, um, people who have done high altitude training, certainly, you know, the athletes go there. Mm. The Olympic athletes will go and do that training where you have less oxygen. So you're having higher demands on your body. And glycogen is no doubt part of that. Glycogen, has a lot of roles in muscle that we probably don't know about all of them
1: mm. now you pull the muscles apart and you look at these as yeah. individual fibers i mean how do you go about that what's yeah. i mean presumably yeah. there's some you know nasty needle going in and pulling bits of muscles out
5: certainly we need a um a needle biopsy and if yep. you watched catalyst on tuesday night there was a whole half hour it was fantastic on on exercise and looking at mitochondria inside muscle right. and they actually showed a biopsy being taken it's a needle biopsy about seven millimeter five to seven millimeters uh, in diameter and that. Sorry,
1: did
3: you say five to seven millimetres in diameter? Yeah. Because what we we learned from earlier today is that's about the same length as a bee's tongue. (laughs) I find that a little disturbing. (laughs) A
5: a bumblebee, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, I'm just trying to think, that's the width of a
1: big pen.
5: Yeah, I always think about it as a pen. So maybe the seven's a bit far off. Maybe it's three to five. But you do need, need, it's quite invasive to take this sample. And The research that I do only needs a really small amount of that Mm -hmm. that biopsy because under a microscope we then um, pull apart with... um Dualest forceps, we pull the single fibres apart mm. and they're about uh, sixty microns in diameter, mm-hmm. each fibre. And we take segments that are perhaps um, two to three millimeters long. So it's micro dissection, but if, if you ever get the chance to have a look at muscle under the microscope, it's it's mm. beautiful mm. under the microscope. It's really uniform and you just it's very gentle and it's very easy to do.
1: And we're talking uh, sixty microns is about a human hair width, so yep. it's quite a, you know you could see it. Um, you can
5: just see it. Just they're quite transparent. It, yeah. So okay. it's have Having the light microscope there is helpful mm-hmm. because you need to be able to, to see what you're looking at. Mm. Um, oh, doctor, oh, no, like jumping it, I, I'm
2: jumping. I'm jumping. Um, I'm sort of straining my mind back to undergraduate, so I might be getting mm. this wrong. But I believe there is uh, fast twitch and yep. slow twitch muscle fibers. So do they look different? No, no, no. Like you so. can't
5: really tell. They're, they're pro- possibly slightly different in diameter, yep. but it's the reason that we have fast and slow twitch muscle fibers sitting side by side each other, particularly in our thigh muscles, mm. um, which is that. which is why i want to look at the single fibers because they behave very different metabolically and they contract in a different way so the the fast twitch fibers contract quickly Mm -hmm. and relax quickly and the slow twitch fibers don't so all of us sitting here nice Mm. and straight are using our back muscles to sit there they're slow twitch we need them to keep on doing Mm. things whereas when you're doing your karate kick in in um
1: yeah, yeah, I'd probably you still use it. the slow, slow <laughs> You're going getting to. older.
5: <laughs> no, no, you won't. you'll still need to use them, but but your fast twitch muscle fibers will be that explosive movement. So mm. because they're so different, by taking a muscle biopsy, they're all together, but we pull out the single fiber so we can say mm. what's this muscle fiber doing versus the 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 other one, mm. and and glycogen is different between these muscle fibers.
1: Mm, mm. And how do you, so how do you go about getting the glycogen presumably out of the muscle fibers? I mean these are pretty small.
5: Yeah, they're really small, so we don't. Um, so there's different ways that you can look at glycogen, and um, we've been, I've got a PhD student who's been working on particular proteins in single fibres and developing techno- techniques to look at glycogen, and we have a, a new way to do that, and we haven't undertaken it yet, but we're about to undertake that. Um, and it's it's a detection method, so we're not actually mm-hmm. extracting the glycogen out of uh, this particular fibre. We're actually going to detect um, proteins that are inside that glycogen. Um, and then the other thing that we do is to look at proteins that are associated with the glycogen, and that's through an antibody, um, so an immunodetection method.
1: Hmm. Now, you're involved in some specific exercise studies at the moment, so linking up all this work with the muscles and so forth. Tell us a bit about what you're trying to find there.
5: Well, I guess um, glycogen is a dynamic fuel source, so it does go up and down depending on what you're doing and what you're eating. And there's a multitude of proteins that we know are required to make the glycogen Mm -hmm. molecule and to break the glycogen molecule down. So what we're trying to do is uh, have people perform a given type of exercise and have a muscle biopsy before that and immediately after that uh, in one of the studies they've had a particular meal so we've had a look at what the effect of having a, glyco- a, a glucose rich meal is mm-hmm. going to be on on the glycogen content and these proteins and to see whether they behave differently in terms of their dynamics in response to exercise or the, or the meal um, we've we've got uh, someone coming out to, to do a high intensity interval training type mm. study so we can see it, does that affect these mm. molecules differently or the proteins differently so it's really early stages in terms of understanding how these proteins behave inside the muscle mm.
2: With those exercise studies does it, um, it make any difference what sort of exercise you get the participants to do whether they're cycling or running or is, does that affect your results?
5: Uh, well, it, it's You have to control for that mm. so you can do a, a concentric exercise which means that your muscles are um, uh, it's the normal sort of exercise if you like yeah. if you do an eccentric exercise so anytime you're feeling particularly sore after exercise the day later and then you're even sore two days later mm. that means that your muscles have been stretched whilst they've been contracted and that means you've uh, done eccentric exercise and that's not metabolically demanding it's mm-hmm. actually that d- you're actually stretching the muscles so depending on what t- what type of exercise you are investigating as to what effects you're doing and they will uh, often you'll have differences in accordance to that. So you have to have very well-controlled exercise studies and having this, the people at the same age gender, typically, um, and uh, physical ability or, or their it's maximal best aerobic best. capacity. Yeah,
1: mm. Mm. I love the fact that eccentric exercise, in my case, is done by eccentric people. <laughs> <laughs> I can remember that and remember where the pain's <laughs> yeah, yeah. going from. like <laughs> Robert, it's really interesting. I assume uh, we're running out of time, and I want to quickly talk about the three-minute thesis um, ah. stuff, but um, neuromuscular disorders, all this must all come into this, yeah. and you know, presumably your work has implications for yeah. some of those problems. yeah look
5: the whole reason i like to look at muscle is because of the health implications and if we Mm. maintain muscle mass we can be healthy for longer so as people get older they lose muscle mass why do they lose muscle mass if we could keep their muscles Mm. stronger for longer they'd be able to live at home for longer so that's a healthy situation but it's just degenerative you have neuromuscular disorders where a lot of these have thought that they are they occur because proteins are not present mm. but we are seeing that they have a metabolic aspect to them as well. So it's mm. all encompassed. You can't sort of pull out one thing or the yeah, other. That's
1: cool stuff. Now you were at the uh, three minute thesis grand final up in Queensland. I was. 20 seconds what was oh, it like?
5: Oh, it was great. It was it, the scope of what people t- PhD students spoke about mm. was amazing. Their ability to get across in three minutes what they've done, why they've done it, why they're passionate about it what the outcome's going to mean to people yeah. was phenomenal. I encourage all people to all scientists yep. to understand how to communicate
2: mm. to yeah. the best of their ability to everybody.
1: You preach into the choir on this show. Uh, and it was Dr. Lauren's man that I she was, refers I, to him.
2: I know, I said, Mark, he's mine, my, he's mine. My. No. He works in the same
1: building. He works in the same building. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, Dr. Eamon Fahi, who we actually had yep. on the radio we a couple did. of weeks ago. So yeah, he um he was the champion of the trans Tasman yeah. competition. So congratulations, Eamon.
1: Yep, great work. Dr. Lauren Murphy, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. Jeez. Uh, <laughs>
5: We're I'll tell you
1: a I'm older today. <laughs> Dr. <it>. Robin Murphy, <laughs> thanks so much for being our guest today on Einstein and GoGo, and good luck with the work.
5: Thank you very much.
1: Robin's an Associate Professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Genetics at La Trobe University here in Melbourne. We're going to have to wind up, folks. We're almost out of time. Dr. Ray, thanks so much. Pleasure, Dr. Good Dr. To Shane. You. And a happy birthday. Oh, thank you. And Dr. Lauren, thanks for the cake. Anytime. Yeah, no, I love it. <laughs> uh, we will talk to you again next week, folks, about some science and talk then um have a great sunday it is a fantastic day out there and if you don't want to go outside have a look at those apollo pictures online because there are literally thousands of them to keep you busy remember science is everywhere you're listening to 3RRR thanks again for being part of today with us and we'll talk to you again next week
3: this has been a podcast from 3 R 102.7
0: fm in melbourne truly independent community radio